Welcome to the Archipelago of Designs Tension podcast series. My name is Philippe Beaulieu-Brossard and I am the co-executive president of the Archipelago of Design. In this third episode, we are going to touch upon the concept of time in strategy, planning and design. So the key tension that we are going to address is between a linear way of understanding time, which is more of the conventional way that we think about time, a bit like like a clock that is running, and more relative understandings of time. And to help us make sense of this tension, I have with me Colonel Edward Award from the Ministry of Defense of the United Kingdom. And I have also with me Colonel Jean-Michel Millet, the Head of Transformations at the NATO Joint Warfare Center based in Stavanger, Norway. Thank you. So today, gentlemen, just to kickstart the discussion, what is the problem with time? Why can't we use the traditional understanding uh, of time? So what do you think about this, uh, Jean-Michel? Well, looking at the issue of time, I think that the major thing is really about the poverty of the vocabulary that uh, that we have to capture the richness of the diversity of time uh, dimension. We use time, but in, we mean a lot of different things. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, when we're speaking generally of, of time, we're talking both of the time of the universe, which we know is relative. We talk about the uh, time of the clock or social time, which is a social construction. And we're also talking about the psychological uh, time, which is the time that we, we feel, that we live, that uh, the memories that we accumulate. But then there are other dimensions, just like uh, the relative time, uh, the notion of duration, the notion of frequency, the notion of sequencing, the synchronicity, which is the combined times that because we all live in separate times. The two notions of the Greek between Kairos, which is a point in time, versus Kronos, where uh, there is a notion of acceleration and speed and the opposite, which is deceleration. And uh, obviously, there is a, the question of the relationship between time and information. And what it creates is... Uh, this lack of vocabulary, uh, generally speaking, is creating a lot of fallacies and mistakes in time interpretation. And uh, we have to face those fallacies all the time. And in terms of military aspects, of course, it means that those fallacies can either be avoided for us or actually exploited when we're talking about uh, the adversary. Thank you. Uh, I, I think the, my position to start off with would be that fine, time is important, but it is not a fundamental in the sense that it isn't fixed. And we know this from Einstein. So the current military use of time, I would say, is quantitative. It's a unit of time. Uh, we see time used in different cultures. We know it has something to do with manoeuvre, and we know it has something to do with ordering. There are sequencing of things. You can be early, you can be late. There's in the right order, there's in the wrong order. And then for those who think about it, you can manoeuvre in advance and use tempo um, to force uh, the rival, the enemy, to expose itself. That's all fine. But because we only think about that, we have a categorical and a fixed view of time and that we're not exploiting all these other potentials um, that we've just mentioned. So an unwise general will ask for more time. Actually, what we want is a richer use or exploitation of time, selecting the right type of time. 
So building on what Jean-Michel just said, you know, you've got social time. Uh, how does it play out? The Taliban have got more time than the Americans, all that type of stuff. You've got the numerical time, we've said, and then we've got the psychological time. But I think it is unpacking those different temporal realities, explaining them, and then bringing them into our thoughts and our designs of our operations and in our conscious way of thinking about uh, um, the ecology of, of what we can do when and how, which is a big ask without confusing people. Yeah, totally. And Jean-Michel, is there some work being done right now at NATO on uh, this uh, this concept? Yeah, the work that we're uh, in NATO, generally speaking, as, as part of the uh, war-fighting concept, we're looking at ways to, in relation with time, to outthink and outpace uh, future adversaries. This is, this is part of the NATO warfighting capstone uh, concept. And, and concretely speaking, it means being able now and in the future to combine and refine time, dimension, and aspects that we just talked about to get clarity and create options, referred generally uh, speaking as seizing the time flanks of adversaries and actually protecting our own by avoiding the traditional pitfalls. And that is reflected in developments in different ways to plan uh, operations and strategy that include design thinking and the inclusion of those different time dimensions into our planning process. One concrete example, uh, which we keep talking about, but we have a lot of difficulty to apply, is the concept of surprise. Surprise is many things, but if we want to avoid surprise, either at the strategic, operational or tactical level, while creating the, uh, the possibility of surprise through deception, you need to look at a lot of those combination time dimensions and specifically what we're uh, doing in uh, Allied Command for Transformation. Edward, can, can you uh, unpack a bit more this concept of uh, time as flank that uh, Jean-Michel just touched upon? Time as a flank was given as a task to unpack by our Lieutenant General Walker back home, who is head of our military strategy and operations. But I think it was very much, uh, as Jean-Michel has just said, it, in that linear view of time, you know, what ought to we be doing now that would be prudent uh, rather than doing something too late? We were able to pull together um, a, a small team, uh, an exceptionally gifted thinker uh, in one of our other departments. So Philip Tovey is in DEFRA, and uh, he was rich in a phenomenology approach to, to time and culture and is also a reservist. And then one of the other army thinkers, um, Colonel Al McCuskey in the, in the Centre of Historical Studies. And what we've started to do is to say, look, you've got time, you've got quantum time, you've got information that changes over time. So Shannon, second law of thermodynamics, entropy, and it moves. And then we said, okay, but just, you know, as examples of surprise and deception, how does time as an objective is reflected in our operations? Of which a really good example is the cultural destruction of items of significance from Trotsky and the Russian Revolution through to the Taliban and Bamiyan through to ISIL. And we did it ourselves, you know, uh, the, the pulling down of Saddam statues in Iraq. Point being, by destroying some uh, physical entity, you're changing people's view of time. It's a new time. It's a new era. And you're unshackling them so you can either take them into democracy or imprison them in autocracy. But that is an example where you're doing something in the physical environment to change the cognitive environment of the people and then to influence their behaviors to your advantage. Fantastic. But do we do it by accident or do we do it explicitly? And with a lot of these very complex problems, um, our sense at the moment is that common practice 
isn't common sense. We haven't, in our doctrine, caught up with some of the virtuosity that we are doing, but we're almost doing it intuitively without um, forethought. And, and therefore, you know, can we unpick that? So I think the idea of of listing some time fallacies, uh, a via negativa, uh, as well as when we get there, principles or maxims, would be a really useful step forward. Yeah, of time fallacies, which one do you see is, is a central uh, time fallacies or bias that... Uh, that we need to overcome? I will pick just two because they're, they're so common. First, uh, the, the fallacy of uh, misunderstanding the duration of any activity because we basically think in terms of a fixed duration, whereas in fact the duration is always a relative, especially in the, in the military domain, it is always a relative thing because well, if, if we would, would want to use an analogy, time competition uh, would be like uh, you're in a room and you're trying to bring furniture in this room. But then there is another person with furniture trying to do the same at the same time, and you're competing with that. So that, in fact, what you plan is always changing in terms of uh, of dimension. So that's one thing about one of time uh, fallacies. The uh, other time fallacies that I can think of is uh, the impossibility to think in terms of multiple time and, and multiple sequences as different uh, elements are trying to sequence things in a different way, and that has an impact on the result. And so we're always uh, thinking in terms of fixed sequence, but actually by changing the, the sequences and changing the tempo of activities, you change completely the, the reality. And, and we tend to think that as, as a fixing. Changing tempo, changing sequences, and thinking about changing them is, is critical. And uh, what about you, uh, Ed, in terms of, uh, of fallacies? Like, which one would you say we need to work on? So I think straight away, the, the, the first one would be that the, the time is linear and fixed. That is not to say, sometimes having a fixed view, and apologizing for contradicting myself straight away or being paradoxical, but sometimes having a difficult problem, only having four minutes to think about it and do something now in complexity is time well spent rather than navel-gazing or, or strategizing forever. So it, in that sense, the first fallacy is it's fixed and linear. And then the second one would be taking Clausewitz's concepts of the understanding the nature of the war being really important is understanding the nature of time in this context. That would be a huge step forward if we have that in an estimate. And then the other one would be that it's time or effects. We work to time, we work to quality. Uh, it's, it's a time-based program, it's an effects-based program. And my, my suggestion would be, why is it one or the other? Why is it not time and effects? Because we notice that the effects change over time. Those would be, um, uh, you know, some to start with. Going back, though, to categorical time, because I think this is important for us, and it's how we see time in an everyday sense, is really resonating what I call time events. We know from the last 15 years, of campaigning uh, that anniversaries from Northern Ireland to um, sheer uh, you know, religious days have significance. So tomorrow's day is significant, not because it's tomorrow, because it's the anniversary of something that happened 300 years ago. So I think putting that uh, and, and really factoring those sort of time tipping points or gravitational areas of time uh, would be another way that we can still take a hard linear view of time, but make it more relevant in, in an adaptable situation. 
And if I, I can add one thing, because I think that is very important, this is fascination in the West for speed and as a primacy of speed over uh, everything as the, the silver bullet to solve uh, most of the issues that we have, that if we go quicker, we'll do better. And that's one potential fallacy that we need to be aware of, that uh, speed is not necessarily the, uh, the solution. But uh, as I said, being able to manage the variation of speed is in much more critical. And that's important as the West is facing very different uh, philosophies about time. Thank you so much, uh, Jean-Michel. And um, on time, uh, Ed, you referred also to uh, multi-domain operations. So how does, does this question of time fit in with uh, multi-domain operations? I think it's a foundational factor or constraint. I mean, that's a very good question. So I think, how would it fit in first? that in a traditional three-dimensional mechanistic military format, I think we're suggesting today here that there are more complex ways of thinking about time just in that military domain. Then, of course, when you start to weave in or fuse non-traditional ways and means, and arguably for different ends, if it's sub-threshold ends, they will all have their own relative version of time. And it will be a way of choreographing um, them all together, which in my mind, the, the, you're after, if you like, a composer's mindset here. The composer doesn't invent the instruments, he doesn't play the instruments, but he can choose what type of music he is crafting, operetta, <laughs> quartet, uh, you know, full orchestra, ensemble, jazz, swing. But he has to have a vision for that piece of music. And in this sense, the vision can be bounded, but it is infinite. It's It's living. So the vision for his music and his use of time is about achieving something that, uh, in musical terms, he will reach. But for us, we will never quite reach. But it can have different temporal bounds. So you could have a concept of time integrated for effects for a two-year pericope or a 10-year or a 30-year. It doesn't matter. It depends on what you're trying to achieve. And to reinforce that point, we can use an analogy, uh, continue with the artistic uh, metaphor. In the military, we still live more or less by the, uh, like in classical plays, where you have unity of action, space, and time. The problem with multi-domain is that we see that this unity is no longer actually achievable. If you look at uh, some of the domains, like uh, space or cyber, in fact, you have uh, this unity of action, space, and time. You need to do things in a very large time frame in order to have an action that will not happen in the same time frame. So we're no longer in classical plays. Uh, and that's why uh, time and multi-domain operations is, is so important because we need to change the, uh, the, the frame of reference. So to unwrap that a bit further, we're going to have to use time differently in multi-domain. It's important for areas of deception and also security or secrecy, clandestine versus covert. Do we want the preparation and the intent to remain obscure? Do we want the act to be undiscovered at the time? Do we expect it to remain undiscovered or deniable afterwards? And the argument would be the way information's flowing now is some of that is just no longer achievable. The corollary would be, well, what does that mean to issues then of exhaustion and culmination? 
how do we define success now over these different temporal um, pluralities? And I'm afraid I haven't necessarily got some answers there, but I don't think that's what we're, we're talking about today. We haven't got the answers. What we're saying is this work that's been looked at in other industries is now seems hyper-relevant to where we're going. And what we want to do is to put some shallow watercolour brushstrokes down to be tentative on what we think is a fundamental issue rather than be decisively trivial. Thank you, Ed. Um, now to go to our, our last question. So how might time to design for defense context? You know, is it something that you consider that's already uh, well addressed with the uh, current methodologies that we're using or there should be some work there uh, as well? Jean-Michel, what do you think about that? That's exactly what we're trying to address at, at the moment, because in a way, our way to design and plan operations is, is very simplistic if we consider time uh, as very linear and uh, with simple causalities. So that the overall design philosophy is uh, all about trying to counter this idea of linearity. And the time factor is an important uh, dimension. Uh, frankly, over uh, the last 20 years, we've not uh, been very good at, at including this uh, idea of non-linearity and trying to have complex causality as a main factor when deciding about operations. So accepting the idea of complex time dimension will probably help changing that, uh, that mindset that this is exactly what we're doing at the moment through new concepts. And uh, what about you, uh, Edward? Where do you think that time fits with design? Like most of these things, I think it is implicit now. People are talking about different eras of time. And the fact that we're talking about it must mean that the people are talking about it. But I don't think it's explicit in our approach to these subjects. Um, some, some obvious examples. I mean, if we look into the wellness and mental health community, time is absolutely central. People living in the past or the future receive an imbalance. And of course, there is the mindfulness community, which is all about living in the present. So that's an example of where something arguably built out of meditation, which is thousands of years old, came out of um, NTH in, in Paris, Plum Village in the 60s and 70s, but is now very much at the forefront. But Has one view of it. Another one would be the concept of legal time, you know, the actions um, that are considered lawful now but are being unpicked. And certainly, as we talk, uh, as everyone talks about lawfare and warfare, um, th there could be a, a decision point where actions you can do now and would be profitable as forms of targeting, kinetic strike, Jones strikes, may serve a purpose here and now, but looking through a lens, perhaps in 10 years' time, will a different group of people with different values and potentially different judicial system bring back uh, and prosecute all these and therefore unpick entire organisations? And we're seeing that in the British Army with certain Northern Ireland. Will it happen through some of the Afghan eras? Uh, and then the third one is the concepts of, again, you know, you win the war but lose the peace, this concept of legitimacy through time. Uh, and there's all the Black Lives Matter, the statues, you know, how do we reinvent time? I think that is important because what we don't want to do is effectively overly complex the useful here and now time, as in watch time or clock time, it's called in some of the doctrines. And nor do we want to say it, everything's going to change, therefore you can't act. What we are saying is because time is not linear and values linked to it can change over time, there might be certain things that are more important than the trivial things we're, we're paying attention to now. And had we had that explicit discussion and concept in our design and our approach to an operation or a campaign, we might have done X rather than Y or, or given ourselves different freedoms and protections. So Ed, the other question I wanted to touch on is that uh, our community is more and more 
relying on, on foresight to think about time. And this is from the scenarios that they are going to develop with foresight. They move to design and, and especially to redesign their organization so it might be more resilient to what's coming. So I was wondering, you know, what, what is the relationship between the way you understand time and foresight? Like, does foresight got it? Another great question. Uh, so they are, of course, related. But I think what is useful now is that foresight, uh, and I'll unpack this, I think is becoming a new and significantly important uh, skill set or arena in its own right. So I think let's, let's unpack it from design for the moment and talk. We've gone from an era of intelligence uh, and trying to predict the future. Many people say you, you can't do that. The best science of saying why you can't is why does time flow from the present, it kind of sort of now backwards, is because it follows the scientific version, the second law of thermodynamics, from concentration to dispersion, from order to disorder. Okay, so what? Well, if that is the case, it does leave a trail. So how can we exploit the trail to make forecasting better? And I think the first significant, and it is significant step here, is to move from certainty and causation to probability and correlation. And, and those, many listeners will recognize some of those terms from the, the writing of Judea Pearl, and particularly now from Super Forecasting and, and Philip Tetlock. If that is the case, I think it's useful to change our view of the world. And this is the second bit that is profound, but I think important, advisable, if not necessary. So in the late 1990s, I think in America coming out was a view of the world of being VUCA, uh, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. While I'm not sure any individual part of that is incorrect, but if that is how you approach the world, it basically means it's, it's changeable, it's unclear, and it's uncertain, which forces you to try to contain it through your actions. And I think we can see that in many of the decisions taken recently. So that would be one way to go about the world. We've tried to look at it on a, as a complex system rather than a, a complicated mechanism, so, so an organism rather than a machine. So to get beyond sort of industrial age thinking, and we've come up with the, with the word poised, that we see the world as probabilistic, it's organised, it's interconnected, it's self-sustaining, it's emergent and it's dynamic. Not fundamentally different, well, they are um, explicitly different words than, than the VUCA ones, but they lead to a, a cognitive, uh, an approach and mindset that sees the world as uh, drifting and adapting. And you can choose to interact with it, hence poise. You know, it, it, it's the position or the anticipation of expectant action rather than, than controlling. So coming back then to forecasting um, and foresight is that if we do understand the world, how it operates rather than how we've categorized it, and we understand it changes over time and drifts, with a larger data pool and more varied information, there is the strong belief that you can have a better probabilistic understanding of even how ambiguous systems act, which therefore means, crude terms, you're able to have better foresight or predict both what might happen and our actions in it. And to say that we're not trying to do that, it's just not true. We try to do that with the weather forecast um, in, in every time. So the question is, could we bring that into a national strategic thinking and in how we use intelligence? 
And the answer is yes. And there have been some very useful programs uh, in America and coming over to the UK trying to take Tetlock's work and, interestingly, combining it with crowdsourcing. So we bring in uh, many different people's views, so thin slicing to get an aggregated view of effectively, can we move from subjective judgment to objective, empirical and verifiable foresights? And the answer is it's difficult, but yes, we can. And the good news is it's a skill that people could learn. And like most skills, the more you practice it, the better we get. So to my mind, that is a really important new change over the last couple of years. And it's something that we should be all trying and embracing. Thank you, Ed. And um, for the professionals that are uh, listening to us, I wonder with all of this conceptual baggage, what would be the practical advice you would tell them? Let's say they would like to uh, rely on what they heard today and use it with their unit tomorrow. You know, what would be the one thing uh, they could implement? I suppose if one thing would be to give up on trying to be right and trying to be relevant. So I suppose that's combining the qualities of humility and courage and, and having a go. The best tip for that is that quantifiably, when we look at our predictions, when we are more certain, 80%, 90%, and we're pretty fixed, there's usually some strong psychological behavior or cognitive biases kicking in, and we're wrong. Clearly, when we say we're 20 or 30% right about something, we may know very little about the subject, in which case we're generally correct that we, we don't know what we're talking about. We're just offering opinion. What is interesting is, is that between sort of the 60 and 75% mark, most people predictions have an above 80 or 85 5% reliability and accuracy. So that is an interesting perspective. And to give a military example of that, I think for those that look at the Zero Dark Thirty film, um, clearly the analyst um, you know, on the project was much clearer that the tool man in a compound in Ashrabad uh, was Osama bin Laden. Uh, and the red teaming went from 40, but I, but I think at the time of it, and, and just going on the information in the film, was about 60 or 70%. It's a useful statistic for me because that proves what we're saying here. You know, So therefore, actually, should we sometimes go all in more on our 60 or 70%? If we don't have time to do cross-hypothesis analysis uh, to prove all the other alternatives are wrong, then, then yes, uh, and hopefully that's a helpful suggestion. Thank you so much, Ed. Thank you so much, uh, Colonel Jean-Michel Mier. So uh, this is uh, all the time we add for this uh, uh, podcast. Uh, no pun uh, intended, uh, indeed. To recap, I would say that, yes, we need to be more aware of different uh, understanding of time, and especially in the 21st century, the numerical or the more traditional way of looking at time in, in a very uh, uh, linear uh, segment way might not be uh, sufficient anymore. Uh, and I think that in planning and all that, we need to consider more Uh, different uh, perceptions and perspectives on time and also how others perceive time. And I think it's relevant to everything we discuss, multi-domain operation, design and, uh, and strategy. And I think we can really um, take into uh, our baggage the, uh, the advice of, of remaining humble, humility and, uh, and all this, uh, that we cannot uh, turn the clock as we, uh, as we want. So thank you so much, everybody. This was another episode of Tension. Bye.